0: Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast. And we discuss how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. And I got to tell you, Laurel, this I feel will be a very, very special Midnight Myth episode and one that I think I've been excited about doing my whole life. I feel as if everything I've done as a intellectual, everything that I have done as a student, everything that I've done as a podcaster has prepared me for this moment today. I couldn't be more excited. I couldn't be more ready. And I feel like we're going to do something that we haven't done before, but is 100% in our wheelhouse. And I can't wait to take a step out the door and see where the long and winding road will take me. I can't wait to travel through this earth of ours, this middle earth of ours, and figure out where the road will lead me, be it towards friends or enemies, be them foes or fantastic friends and allies. Will there be wizards? Will there be dragons? Will there be orcs? What will happen one will never know when the midnight myth goes back to Lord of the rings.
1: Yes, we have been building up to this for so long and yet it feels like we are, as you said, taking that first step out the door onto that road which goes ever on and on until it meets some larger road that we're all on our way to join. Uh, This is a super exciting uh, podcast series that we are embarking on at this moment. This is a, a journey that we are just now beginning And if you have been listening to The Midnight Myth as a faithful listener for as long as we have been podcasting, you know that this is not the first time that we have discussed The Lord of the Rings, Uh, but we like to think that we've come a long way in the three years that we have been making this show uh, and that we have left a lot on the table in terms of what we can offer as far as analysis and entertaining discussion of this fantasy series that has changed both of our lives. That means a ton to both of us. So this is going to be a slightly different um, way to approach it uh, from what we have done in the past and also, you know, feel like a classic Midnight Myth episode. I'm super stoked, just like you are, Derek. uh, And I cannot wait to get into what we're going to talk about tonight.
0: Yeah. So a few structural things just to get out of the way, how this conversation will work. Laurel and I just reread Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book in the trilogy. So obviously, spoiler wall is up for Fellowship of the Ring, and uh, the movie will be discussed too. When we did the original Lord of the Rings podcast way back in our first year as podcasters, we focused primarily on the movies, and we drew from the books here and there. Realizing that it had been such a long time since I have read the series... Laurel and I wanted to reread it, so our conversation is going to focus more heavily on the books than it is on the movies, however the movies may factor into it. So one, spoiler wall. Two, focus on the books. If you haven't read the books, what are you doing listening to The Midnight Myth? Uh, You got to go read these books, people. Yeah, They literally invented modern fantasy, something that I know, if you're listening to this podcast, you love. So we're going to talk about the books, but we're not going to talk about Everything, And the reason I, I just have to say this, you could get a PhD in Tolkien lore. Tolkien himself was a very accomplished intellectual writer and linguistics, linguist and historian. There's so much to talk about that we are going to pick on a few things that we really meditated on and thought were interesting based off of the reading that we just had. We both originally read these when we were much younger approaching them again as an adult. So if we left something out, Midnight Myth listeners, that you think is an egregious error or that you want to hear us talk about, please let us know. We'll definitely talk about it at some point, whether it's on Twitter or whether that's an actual other episode. So it will not be exhaustive. It will focus primarily on the books. And we're doing book one. Now, as soon as we're done with this episode, Laurel and I are going to start reading The Two Towers. If you want to read along with us, please do read to The Two Towers with us. Let us know your thoughts on social media along the way, and we'll mention them here on the podcast. And probably, I'd say, maybe about a month it might take us to get through the book and prepare an episode and then discuss it. So you should see The Two Towers roughly a month from now, and we'll announce more specifically once we know via social media. So Laurel, plug all the social media stuff we need to plug here.
1: Absolutely. So if you want to keep up with when our Lord of the Rings episodes are going to be, if you want to see what other episodes we're doing in the meantime, recommend uh, something for us to study or just get in touch and tell us what you think of the show. The best place to reach us is on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also get in touch with us via our website, which is midnightmyth.com. And there is a contact form there on the website. If you just wanted to send us some listener mail, we would love to hear from you. We would love to read your responses on the show. Uh, You can also on our website sign up for our email list. We'll send you a newsletter no more than once a month just with regular updates, new merch, all kinds of fun stuff. And while you're on the website too, check out our blogs, check out the link to our Patreon if you are interested in supporting us or helping us to cover our costs here at the podcast. Uh, we would love to shout out our beloved Patreon supporters once more here on the podcast. That is Heath, Mary Liz, Beth, Flavio, and M. Thank you so much for supporting us. There should be a new Patreon bonus episode coming very, very shortly. And if you want to get in on those bonus episodes, make sure you support us at the $5 level or more on Patreon. Uh, And you can also, on our website, MidnightMyth.com, find a link to our merch store. So merch we have is going to be like Midnight Myth shirts, Midnight Myth tote bags, phone cases, mugs, whatever. We also have tons of merch, including some new items for our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, which is where Derek and Steve read through Stephen King's The Dark Tower and discuss it, a great podcast project that they're doing right now that is very close to wrapping up a read of The Dark Tower. So if you haven't listened to that yet and you love to read, you love Stephen King, make sure that you read along with Derek and Steve and check that out.
0: And also, if you're hitting us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, you're probably talking to Laurel, and let's face it, Laurel is the smarter, more interesting, and more beautiful of the two. No. But if you want to talk to me, you can hit me up at Derek C. Jones, 198. That's my personal Twitter. So feel free if you want to drop me a line, which you probably won't, because let's face it, we all want to talk to Laurel. Nah. All right, on with the show. Oh, one last announcement. There may be another Midnight Myth offshoot podcast coming soon. So. If you are, like what we're doing here, there may be another idea because I'm not busy enough doing podcasts. I want to do another one. Let's
1: do three podcasts. Yeah, Absolutely. why not?
0: Midnight Myth, Wheel of Ka, and a potential third. More on that once I have more of the details and nuts and bolts um, kind of worked out. So just... Teasing that out there.
1: Absolutely. One last thing before we move on. Uh, if you are following us on all of our social media, you're doing it right. If you are leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts, you're doing it right. Uh, but stay tuned, watch those channels, check out our website, sign up for our email list because we will, at the culmination of this Lord of the Rings project, be doing a special Lord of the Rings themed giveaway. I'm not going to tell you exactly what that is now. You'll have to wait and see but one lucky listener will get a very special Lord of the Rings giveaway gift at the end of this project.
0: All right. Pretty awesome. All right. On with the show? Yes. Well, this is a tough one to recap. So really simple, briefest to briefest recaps. This is about Frodo Baggins discovering that the ring that his uncle uh, Bilbo Baggins leaves him is actually the one ring of power forged by the dark Lord Sauron to bring about a fascist evil empire over all of middle earth. He embarks on a journey with his fellow travelers to take the ring as far as in the first book, as far as the crossroads between whether they turn East into um, Mordor or they turn West to Gondor. And that's where it ends with Frodo leaving the entire company. We have all of the characters that we know and love Gandalf Gimli Legolas, Sam, Aragorn, yeah, Boromir, all on this. We have the amazing time in places like Rivendell, Moria, Lothlorien, these fantastic settings, the Shire, can't forget about that. And this is essentially Frodo's start to the journey. This is a story about Frodo finally making the decision to leave the company with his trusty gardener, Sam, to go into Mordor alone that's all we're gonna do for recap because we just don't have any more time.
1: Absolutely,
0: I, I just want to I want to kick this off uh, with a few basic questions. When if you go back and listen to our early Lord of the Rings episodes, we talked about how we came to Tolkien. I just want to know: Do you have any fun Tolkien anecdotes? Any stories? Anything that makes this so special for you?
1: I absolutely do, and you know, I could talk about. Uh, role-playing Lord of the Rings with my friends in middle school. I could talk about hearing The Hobbit for the first time read to me in class, but you know what just popped in my head when you asked that question is, uh, you remember when we got married, Derek, right? I do. Uh, So you and I got married uh, a year and a half ago about, and our uh, wonderful dear friend who married us, Duffy, wrote a script for our ceremony. And when we were figuring out what he was going to say during the exchanging of the rings at our wedding, uh, he gave us an offering and was like, "I, I could say this if you feel comfortable with me saying this in the hallowed space of your marriage ceremony. And we ended up being like, this is amazing. You have to say it. And what he said was, as we exchanged rings, uh, be careful that you don't have to cast it into the fiery pits of Mount Doom or the fiery <laughs> chasm from whence it came. Uh, and everybody cracked up laughing and it was such a, a delightful moment that over the most like important moment of our lives, we were able to acknowledge that we kind of came together over our shared nerddom and our love of fantasy and literature uh, and that became a part of, of our wedding ceremony.
0: That's such an amazing story. Yeah. That absolutely tops mine. My story is when the Return of the King was out, I was living in New Jersey. And at the time, I smoked cigarettes and I was watching it with a friend. We got our tickets and we went to the back because you weren't allowed to smoke in the front of the theater because you might get secondhand smoke into non smokers, right. I guess. So we go to the back, we're sitting there smoking a cigarette. The Return of the King just let out, and out of the back entrance came the governor of New Jersey a guy by the name of McGreevy and Governor McGreevy had just seen the Lord of the Rings was exiting with his security. And as he was walking, I went, yo, Gov, what's up? And he waved to me and Governor McGreevy later resigned from governorship of New Jersey because he was caught having an extramarital affair with a man. And then he had to resign that ended his political career. Oh, my
1: God. Okay.
0: (laughs) This was back in, you know, uh, early 2000s. And uh, being a closeted homosexual, I assume, he was married to a woman when he became governor. Yeah. um, Was apparently a sin that he could not recover his political career. He resigned the governorship and has been out of politics ever since.
1: Wow. Wow. What a weird story.
0: Yep. And at any time I think of funny stories or weird things about Lord of the Rings... It was Return of the King. I saw the governor. I waved and said hi. He said hi back. And meanwhile, me and my buddy, we are young and we are full on punks. Like were like spikes and pink hair and mohawks and chains smoking a cigarette. And he was actually smiled and waved to us, which was actually pretty cool.
1: Nice. All right. All yeah. Right. <laughs> and
0: uh, it wasn't too much later that he ended up resigning.
1: Oh, wow. All right. Interesting. And that's
0: my funny Lord of the Rings story. I
1: love it. I yeah. love
0: it. Let's jump into the fellowship. Um, big question for you. We have just reread the books. We've re-seen the movie several times. Yeah, uh, how, how are you feeling about it? Do you think this, this book holds up? We both read them when we were young. We're very different people now than we were then. Is there any major takeaway gut reaction to rereading and re-watching The Fellowship of the Ring that maybe you didn't think or feel before? Maybe you want to say, or is it still just A classic as you remember it.
1: Wow. Uh, I I have tons of thoughts uh, and tons of immediate reactions reading this now. Uh, I mean, we're reading this in a post Game of Thrones world too. So there is a lot of comparison happening when I read this and think about how much it influenced uh, newer contemporary fantasy. So that's obviously in the back of my mind and was not there when I was first reading it. Uh, I first read it in like sixth grade. Uh, I saw The Fellowship of the Ring. I had read The Hobbit as a very young child. Um, I saw The Fellowship of the Ring and was like, I need to read all of these books right now. And I just slammed through them and loved the books, loved the movies. Um, But this was my first time reading them as an adult. And I found it insanely comforting to... uh, to dive back into this world and to immerse myself in the language, immerse myself in the incredible civility of the the novel, of the writing of all of the characters. It's uh, a really bouncy narrative um, and the characters feel, uh, it it almost feels like the book is sort of embracing you and allowing you into this world without too much uh, shock or violence right away. You spend a lot of time in the Shire You spend a ton of time just living among hobbits and learning what their lives are like. And as a grown person, I'm like, that's like taking a vacation for me, you know, spending some time knowing what it's like to be at Bilbo's birthday party, hearing about what the hobbits are eating, hearing about what slight turns of a phrase might actually sour everybody on you because you called them one gross instead of 144 hobbits. Uh, what a vulgar expression. And to me, that's just so funny. Um, and so I, I found it very comforting to slide back into this narrative. Uh, it's one that really grows up as it goes. So you are welcomed in with this really warm environment, and then you descend uh, deeper into these uh, morally complex landscapes. And I I just absolutely loved it. Um, I, I don't know what else I can say here at the beginning, just that, like, It was a different experience reading it as an adult. I'm glad that I did it, uh, and I feel very conscious of how much I have taken in that's influenced by it and how much I've taken in that influenced it in the time since I last read it. What about you?
0: I love that. So I want to just draw out a few things that you said that I happen to agree with. I think a good third of the book is in the Shire And the first phases of the adventure to just get out of the Shire. Right. This gives the Shire a real sense of place and purpose to these characters. It's a place that's lived in. You feel it. You understand.
1: There's culture. Yeah.
0: That it's a large place. Different places of the Shire act differently. For example, if you are around Buckland, you probably are cool with boats. But if you're closer closer into Hobbington, you think boats are about the most evil thing ever.
1: And that is a massive cultural difference. Like that determines what almost makes Buckland hobbits and uh, Hobbiton hobbits a different species in their perspective.
0: Absolutely. Even though that they have so much in common, they're separated through one of these just cultural things, which is we're close to water. Boats aren't bad. We actually like them. Uh, you're close to water and you're on boats. No, no, no. Hobbits belong underground, not underwater. Yeah. And you spend so much time in the Shire in this book that it does feel cozy. It does feel like a vacation. And once they break through that, this Sam, Mary, Pippin, and Frodo break out of the Shire, they're instantly put into a dangerous forest that they get horribly lost in, where the forest itself is trying to kill them.
1: Yeah, the trees are trying to eat them. Old Man Willow is going to swallow up Mary. Absolutely.
0: They get trapped literally in a tree. So there is this sense of there is a dividing line between the comfort of the Shire, the importance of the Shire to these characters. I mean, Frodo spends, I think, what, a decade between getting the ring and going on the adventure.
1: I think it's more than a decade. He spends a
0: long time and we are with this character there. And the Shire feels like such an important and real place that when they finally leave it, it does have, it's almost like a linguistical shift happens when they're in the Shire. It feels much more like you're reading a kid's book.
1: Yeah. It It feels like you're reading the sequel to the Hobbit
0: is very bouncy. It's very friendly everything is very inviting. And yeah, there's these like queer black rider things. They're a little strange, but then once they get out of there, it instantly shifts into a much more serious tone. It becomes much more threatening and much more hostile. And I think the language uh, bears that switch. My biggest takeaway from rereading this at this point in time, when I had first read the Lord of the Rings, which I think I have read the whole series twice Okay. Yeah. Before this. So I believe this is my third time. Um, I could be a little hazy there. I wasn't a student of history the first time I read Lord of the Rings nor the second, but here the third time I have since become a student of history. I've engaged with the primary sources of ancient Rome, ancient Greece, uh, many great medieval historians and read those, those words. And I've read how, and I've studied how that they were written as chroniclers of people that would walk around and follow the great events, talk to the people and capture their tales and put them into a prose. I feel very much that this book is written exactly in that same style. Mm. It feels to me that I am reading a history in the way that I would read Plutarch, the famous Greek uh, biographer, or Thucydides, who chronicled the Peloponnesian War. It feels that it is both narratively alive. For example, there are points in ancient histories in which they will capture dialogue and write the dialogue down. It is not at all believed by any contemporary historians that the ancient historian was there and just wrote down the dialogue. The historian is speaking through the characters, imagining the dialogue that was to tell a moral or a point about an event. right. This happens in Herodotus. This happens in Thucydides. I could go on and on with ancient historians. This happens with Livy, the famous Roman historian. And I feel that this is in that same vein, that I'm reading a piece of ancient or medieval history. And I think that is the way to interpret and analyze at the very least the language that Tolkien's using to craft this tale. Yes,
1: and Tolkien does interrupt as a sort of um, detached narrator at some points. It's not frequent, but when he does, he says things like, uh, I will not reproduce for you the entire conversation that they have because you already know this. Or uh, And then Frodo sang a song on top of the table, a few of the words of which are reproduced here now for you. Uh, and so there are moments where this academic narrator comes in and reminds us that we are uh, receiving a text that is a history of the ring, a history of the war of the ring. And that gets very deeply into Tolkien's academic background as a professor at Oxford. It gets deeply into his interests as a philologist, which is somebody who studies the uh, development and history of languages and how those converge with culture, uh, and really helps to cement the absolute massiveness of this world that he created and the immediacy of the story that is currently being told.
0: Yep, I totally agree. If you are reading, for example, Thucydides, there's a famous, famous chapter in Thucydides in which the um, Athenians go to a Spartan colony. It's on an island and surround it. And they have this dialogue in which they tell this Spartan colony that they must surrender otherwise um, and join and fight with the Athenians to fight the Spartans or they'll destroy the city. And they refuse and they destroy the city. And no one who reads this believes that this is an actual literal dialogue that happened. And Thucydides himself is common to, uh, commonly comments on like, from what I've heard, from what I've told, these are the events. This is, I think, the most reliable version of them, but I don't know if this really happened this way. And in this, we see these characters living in this very grand, very epic, and very historical style language It's as if I am reading the chronicles of Caesar or if I'm reading the great uh, crusading chroniclers who followed the crusades and wrote down their heroic deeds, including miracles like God coming in in the the thick of battle and swaying things for the sides of the Christians over the vicious Saracens. And I feel that the language is very steeped in this, which brings me to my second reflection, if you'll permit me to go on. And uh, well, let me ask you this.
1: Yeah, go ahead. My, um,
0: on my second reflection, is this a literate society, Middle Earth, at this time? What do you think?
1: I think, okay, I think that's a wonderful question and something that I'm very interested in uh, because something that jumped out to me reading this was the frequency with which. Um, we would learn information not through onstage action per se, not through actually being with the character through their uh, their trials or their, um, their challenges, but hearing from them secondhand, hearing from them as they craft a story and tell another character about it. Uh, most of the information about history of this world is learned through lore masters or is learned through the wise or the wizards like Gandalf, Uh, telling another character, revealing that to them uh, based on a knowledge of the history that they contain. There are some times when we have characters who go to written sources, like Gandalf going to the Diaries of Isildur, um, but for the most part, the characters contain knowledge and impart it uh, personally through uh, spoken language. There are definitely literate characters. We know that Bilbo is writing a book. We know that records exist in the minds of Moria. We know that there is some aspect of written language and written communication that pervades this world and several of the races within it. But I don't get the, the impression that it is widespread. I get the impression that access to history usually means you have to be elite, you have to be connected to one of the wise or the wizards, or you have to be a lore master yourself. That's my impression there. So not a widespread literate society, but maybe a society in transition.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we see three characters who we know for a fact can read, and Gandalf, Bilbo, and Frodo. All the other characters, it's really not known if they can or cannot read, at least in this book, from what I can recall. And Twitter fact-check me if I'm missing something. Here. Yeah, sure. Please let me know if I did. But... <sighs> So you made an interesting comment there that I want to pick at, and not pick on, but just unpack. I yeah, should please, say. Yeah, please, yeah. You said that the interaction with history comes from lore masters. I would argue that the way this book is written, as framed by ancient history and medieval history, in that we're reading a... Piece of literature, piece of fiction, structured and built like it's an ancient history book, tells me that we are looking at the formation of history in Middle Earth and that we are looking at a society that is prehistorical, at least linguistically speaking. It might sound like a riddle, but the way they interact with history is through lore masters. I would submit that they don't actually interact with history at all. They interact with myth and legend. And
1: memory, yeah. Myth, and they interact legend, with and memory. Yeah. And
0: memory, right? But not actual history. I think that's a great distinction. Which comes to the question, well, what the heck is history anyway? You know, if we're sitting there listening to Legolas sing a beautiful song that tells a tale about the history or Aragorn does this, is this not history? And the answer to that question is, well, sadly, no. History requires that you have A, a written down version of events, and B, you wrote down those version of events simply to record those version of events. And then three, that based upon recording those events, you can extrapolate a causation towards potential future events. So the reason the earliest historians wrote histories wasn't because everyone was doing a great job remembering things through poetry and song. Quite the opposite. It was that poetry and song failed to actually record events in a true, proper, or what we would call through a a lens of historical veracity. They were fundamentally untrue. What's the biggest example of this in the ancient world? The Iliad and the Odyssey. Right. Long poems meant to be sung that have compacted mnemonic devices which make it easier for you to remember the lines so people could recite them. Reciting a poem, generation after generation, while helps people to remember, is not historical in its very nature. It's easy to remember, and it certainly is beautiful, and it could have nuggets of truth and wisdom in which you can unpack, but on its face value, by itself alone, not historical. It must actually come from a historian to be history. And we are seeing, I would view, The Fellowship of the Ring as the start of written history in Middle-earth.
1: I think that is uh, outstanding, and I think you're absolutely right about that. And we do see the persistence of things like song, especially in the character of Bilbo, who is constantly composing songs or rhymes that deal with either rowdy innkeepers or his friend Aragorn, trying to preserve that legend or that semblance of history for generations to come. We even get the impression from a song that Frodo sings in the bar, I believe at Brie, that Bilbo is responsible for the rhymes that are now um, the, what is it, hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle. So we have a, a version of that that Bilbo has created as a sort of mnemonic device. And that's something that uh, is not only part of the uh, ancient, Rome, ancient Roman, ancient Greek oral tradition with Homer, Uh, but also with Tolkien's area of expertise in uh, the medieval British Isles. So something I was looking into recently were the Welsh Triads, which were uh, written down in the 13th century, but are these combinations of three lines, um, which all end up put together, and each three lines... Uh, says something about like the three trials that Britain faced during the Dark Ages, the three wives of Arthur, the three, you know, this and this, and it was all about um, preserving some semblance of history or some semblance of legend for entertainment, but also for memory, so that the uh, storyteller, the oral storyteller, and the audience could remember key details because they were grouped in three. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely, I think you've made an incredible point here.
0: Yeah, I want to unpack a few things, too. Calling something non-history uh, or non-historical, I mean that from a strict or more academic lens. Yeah, totally. Not definitively or dogmatically, you know, because in many ways, if you are interacting with an ancient poem, you are you are definitely interacting with a form of history. So I wanted to clarify that. And two, if you're an ancient person and non-literate, you do have a problem if you want to communicate something to the next generation. How do you get that knowledge there when you don't know how to read and write? In fact, read and writing may not have even been invented yet. And poetry and song is the way that that was done for what you said. You create mnemonic devices that are easy to have people remember so you can teach them these songs that they can repeat them. The problem of why they are un historical from a certain lens is that one, there's no definitive version or text. They've never been written down. Yeah. Or they are
1: much, much later, yeah.
0: Every time they get passed on, there's going to be some element of adaptation and change to it or elaboration done to it. If you are talking about, you know, a thousand years after, say, a war in Troy or the destruction of a dark lord named Sauron, and that has been communicated via song every person who touches that song is going to put a little something onto it or into it. That's going to alter it, which is going to make it less and less fundamentally true to the point where at the very end, what you get is probably very different from the event. It was trying to chronicle Yeah. versus someone who writes it down and says, this is what happened. This is how I know this is what happened. And this is the conclusions that we can get based upon that. Now, One might argue, what is a better way to understand the past? And if you're a historian, you have to know all of it, right? You have to know the, if you want to study um, ancient Greece, you better, better focus on the Iliad and the Odyssey. But the Iliad and the Odyssey tell more about classical Greeks than it does about the archaic Greeks it seeks to immortalize. Yeah, yeah. It's more revealing about those who recited the poems than Achilles' or um, Hector, it doesn't tell us much. Like, it doesn't even tell us where Troy is, you know? And we are seeing this type of history through these characters in this song. And I think the development of Middle Earth from a, a society that teaches history through poetry and song to one that writes it down is what we are seeing right now. The intellectual battle happening and the intellectual development happening in Middle Earth is a transition from a post-literate—I'm sorry—from a pre-literate to post-literate, from a a society that understands its past through poetry and song and music and dance to a society that engages in historical discourse.
1: Yes, uh, and it's significant that this is happening at the time of a great war, too. It's significant that this is happening at a time when you could say a very, very important event is happening that if we are going to learn uh, from our mistakes, if we are going to create a better future for the free peoples of Middle-earth, it behooves us to have uh, a full and complete understanding and a full and complete way of communicating the events of this war to future generations.
0: Yep, and that is one thing, the language that Tolkien uses, it's one thing that is impossible to replicate in film. It's one of the few things that, despite the amazing talent of Peter Jackson and the phenomenal adaptation that he did that I deeply, deeply, deeply love, it is just freaking impossible to take that language and make it into a film. It can only be done through the power of a book.
1: Yes, yeah, there is a, a great difference between characters telling each other what happened to them, uh, sitting around in a circle talking, and uh, the great epic adventure that we get in Peter Jackson's films, which I think are extraordinary, and take uh, take full advantage of the medium to make this the most cinematic adaptation of the most academic literature. I so, totally agree. Yeah, a, a humongous effort.
0: This was supposed to be a quick intro segment. But here we go. Quickly went down deep rabbit holes. I think
1: we probably should have anticipated that but here we are. We
0: haven't even started talking about what we wanted to talk about
1: but I think this was a good start and I think it lays the groundwork for a lot of what we're going to say through the entire series not just through fellowship.
0: Yep understand this as a work of history and progress as one of the first histories of Middle Earth to me is the key to unlocking the power of the language to understanding really what Tolkien was about. And in his afterword in the fellowship of the ring, he says, Tolkien, that is, he says that what he loves is history. He says, like, literally he says, I'm more interested in history than I am in allegory. Real or imagined. Real. Real or imagined. Yeah. And that's where it like clicked. And I'm like, yep, that's the way to understand this. It's no different than reading Josephus. It's no different than reading you know, any work of medieval chronicler or ancient chronicler of great, terrible, and amazing events. Absolutely. Let's pivot.
1: Yes, um, let's pivot.
0: Let's talk about... We can't talk about everything in the book, but I know that for me, there were a few standout scenes that I really wanted to pick apart. Did you have any scenes from the book or the movie that you want to highlight and pick apart?
1: Yes, I 100% do. Uh, We have reflected a little bit on the time that's spent in the Shire and the culture of the Shire. And you laid the groundwork and talked a little bit about how once they step out of the Shire, the hobbits encounter a really violent forest that fights back against them and is conspiring to keep them from continuing on their adventure. And there is a character that they meet in the old forest that I think deserves some of our attention and that was unfortunately cut from the movies, though I do think that was probably the right decision on Peter Jackson's part. But we are going to talk about fan-favorite, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend... Tom Bombadil.
0: I love this. When I first read The Fellowship way, way, way back in the day, I thought this was probably one of the worst parts of the book. Was this weird dude with his, what is his, yellow boots and blue coat, I think it is. Yeah, it's very weird. And he's just coming around, singing these songs, and like talking to trees, and like he doesn't care about the ring. And I remember actively being bored way back in the day reading this being like can we just get on with the actual like adventure part of this it felt like this weird stop into bizarre fairyland and i was not into it at all because i wanted to see the company battle some monsters and orcs now rereading it probably one of my favorite if not the favorite part of this whole book
1: yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, when I read it, I wasn't put off by it. I thought it was really fun. Uh, I enjoyed the part. Uh, but again, it, it felt very, very incongruous with the rest of the book uh, and felt like a very silly frivolous part of this story, Um, and this time reading it, it carried a lot of weight and is a character who I'm super, super interested in exploring a little bit. So just as a reminder about who Tom Bombadil is for our listeners here, if you haven't read it in a little while, once the hobbits enter the old forest, uh, they encounter a number of obstacles, one of which is Old Man Willow. So there is a spirit in a willow tree has been around a really long time and is super vindictive and hates everybody. And it eats up one of the hobbits, and they have to try and get I forget if it's Mary or Pippin who gets wrapped up in Old Man Willow, but uh, they have to rescue this hobbit. And the one who comes to their aid is this bouncing forest sprite named Tom Bombadil, who wears yellow boots and has a blue coat and sings and rhymes everything that he says. They end up going to the house of Tom Bombadil and spending two nights there, which are very unusual nights. Frodo has some prophetic visionary dreams, one where he sees presumably Gandalf on the top of Orthanc being carried away by the eagles, uh, and one where he sort of envisions what his ultimate end in the story is going to be. So we will get to more of that in The Return of the King. But it's a very, very interesting sequence. We also meet Tom Bombadil's wife, Goldberry, the river daughter. Uh, Like I said, the first time I read this, he came across just as a kind of fairy, right? Just as a kind of silly fairy who lives in the woods and seems uh, unconcerned with the power of the ring or anything that's going on outside. But reading through it again, you get a new impression. Uh, You learn that Tom Bombadil has been in the world of Arda, which is where Middle-earth resides, for maybe longer than anyone. He calls himself older than the elves, older than Sauron. He was here you know, before the first acorn and the first raindrop. He may be the oldest living creature in the world. And he comes across as a god. Would you also agree with that impression?
0: Yeah, I totally do. And when I say a god or i echo you saying a god i mean it much more in a ancient i would say celtic or norse sense in that there are these very powerful magical beings who live among us who can commune with nature who are sometimes a personified part of the nature in the way that his wife is like a personified river and they come to the They are the supernatural aid that comes to our heroes when they fail their first trial, which is simply just navigate the woods. Right. And they fail at navigating it and help usher them to the next part because he has described Bombadil in such mythic terms in the fact that he has more names than he can remember. He can talk to the trees. He sort of miraculously comes when they are calling for aid and just happens to be there and that he just sort of sort of, supernaturally has lots of food everywhere all the time, and that they spend time there, but we don't really see them doing anything. It's like the house sustains itself.
1: Yeah, and it's like time uh, sort of- uh,
0: Slows itself down. Yeah,
1: and time is, is difficult to judge when you're in this space. I think they spend an entire day just gathered around the fire with Tom as he tells them stories and sings them songs, and they are- I think the language literally says they are under the spell of Tom's words. Uh, I find him to be an incredibly compelling character. Uh, He does remind me, like you just said, of um, these uh, sort of other world figures of Celtic mythology or the Tuatha de Danann, who were a race of gods uh, in Irish mythology and were some of the earliest people or earliest figures, these kind of demigods who walked Ireland. Uh, in that mythological tradition. So I think they share a lot of characteristics there. Um, one thing that I want to share, I read a, a really interesting article uh, in a journal called Myth Lore by a guy named Paul Lewis, where he uh, wrote about Tom Bombadil and a character from The Hobbit named Bjorn, who are both these sort of tangential figures in the actual uh, immediate narrative, but add this incredible dimension uh, to the the size and the uh, impact of uh, the, the legendaria around Middle-earth. And I just want to read a quote here from this article. Please do. He says, quote, Bombadil and Bjorn see things as they really are. In other words, they have an insight into reality. This is a parallel with Adam's naming of all of the animals in the Garden of Eden before his fall into sin and the resulting distortion of reality. "'True names are important to Tolkien. "'The wizards did not readily give their true names, "'nor did Treebeard believe that the hobbits "'should give away their names so easily. Second, the concern of naming is a distinguishing feature "'of Tolkien's perspective as a philologist. "'Tolkien recognized the power of names and naming, "'and within a magical world, "'those who could truly name were indeed powerful.'" So that refers to the spell of Bombadil's words, the way that he comes up with the true names for the ponies that he gives the hobbits as he is ushering them onto the next phase of their adventure, and the fact that even though he is this figure who's enclosed in this forest, who does not travel further with them, he has a deeper insight into the true nature of Middle-earth because he has been there so long, and because he has power over communication, over language, and over you know some aspect of the oldness of this earth.
0: I absolutely love that. You know, the idea of a more ancient style God is that, you know, in the ancient world, gods were not transcendent in their very nature, in the way that modern theological people discuss God as living, for example, in heaven, right, in a different plane of existence, and God can travel between these planes, usually through vehicles such as angels or the Holy Spirit, or depending on your religious beliefs, directly the hand of God can come through this other plane into ours and affect events. Well, in the more ancient sense, and we called out Norse, Celtic, Irish, Germanic, um, even Greek and Roman uh, to a lesser extent, these gods are physical beings that live on this plane of existence and have tremendous sway over the events. But they are not omniscient, nor are they omnipotent. They have a limit to their powers and knowledge. Odin famously had to give up his eye to learn magic runes. Right. You know, and he had to hang himself from the tree of knowledge for nine days and almost kill himself to gain the wisdom of the Allfather. We see that very much like Tom Bombadil, where he has a limited scope, a limited range, but has potentially existence, existed since pre middle earth or at the formation of middle earth. So you have this being as old as creation itself, living in this forest, offering aid and food and having, like you said, the power to name the power to name is almost, if you think about this intellectually, To name a thing is also to create it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're thinking about it from a sort of meta-literary level too. Like Tolkien has the power of naming and so does Tom Bombadil. They share that connection as Tolkien is creating slash revealing this universe.
0: Absolutely. And calling it a thing and naming it and being able to give form and shape and design and function is another way to say to give it life. To make it actually exist and to have this this power of naming in this character links it to much more of a deity rather than just a weird stop off with a fairy yeah it's more to me this this idea that there's some ancient forces and these ancient forces are not all evil right. right they're not all working against our heroes there will be supernatural supernatural aid to help them on the journey. Tom Bombadil is the first step of that. Yeah. Of being like, don't worry. There's good in this world as much as there is evil and good can still triumph. Yeah. And you could be almost consumed by an evil, mean spirited tree, but you know what? Ask for help. And here comes an ancient God of the old forest to tell that tree to stop sucking and to give you food and water for two days.
1: Absolutely, and tell you wonderful tales. He's also, of course, able to handle the ring and even wear it without turning invisible. We know that the ring turns people invisible when they wear it, uh, and so this suggests that he has a power that is beyond the ring of power, the thing that represents power in this universe. Uh, and later, you know, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, at the Council of Elrond, he will be brought up as a potential ring bearer. When they say, who can take this for us? It's suggested that Tom Bombadil, who has power over the ring, might be a good person to entrust with this task. This is eventually rejected for a few reasons. Uh, One is because if he has such power, or if his power is beyond that of the ring, it's suggested that... He may find the ring so insignificant that he would lose it or misplace it or throw it away casually. Uh, And the other reason is that uh, Tom seems to have imposed boundaries on himself. He's concerned with, quote unquote, keeping his own country, which means he stays within that forest. He stays at his house. He stays with his wife and keeps track of his hearth and home and the beings and creatures within his forest, and probably could step beyond them and would have power beyond them, but he has chosen to remain in this forest. So that's something very interesting where we have uh, you know, this gathering darkness in Mordor of this powerful figure in Sauron, and then this powerful figure in Saruman too, who want to gather as much power as possible. If you have the potential for that power, how do you not try to gather that power? But Tom Bombadil doesn't. He doesn't have ambitions past keeping his own country, which I think is very significant.
0: You know, that's an interesting point. And that would lead me to another, at least theme I got out of the, yeah. the fellowship. And that is one of boundary, one of thresholds, one of country and a essential part of knowing what civilization you are, who you are within the greater scope of, of human elven, dwarven, or hobbit affairs is knowing where your country starts and stops, knowing where are your boundaries. And in many ways we see this uh, fellowship representing us sort of this sort of like pan species, you know, international group that are trying to transverse and go through all of these different boundaries and cross into all of these different countries And every place that they cross, whether that's the crossing of the Shire into that forest where Bombadil lives to then Bree, then into Rivendell, then to Moria, then to Lothlorien, and then to choose whether to go to Mordor or to Gondor, you can only make these crosses if these are different places. And they can only be different places if you've created a place to know where one kingdom starts and another stops. And that is a very significant aspect to both how we organize our own civilizations as ones with borders and boundaries and knowing when to cross and deciding who can cross when, where, and how is a a question that plagues both Middle Earth. For example, do they travel up a mountain or do they go through the Mines of Moria? In the Mines of Moria, Does this belong to the dwarves or does it belong to the orcs? Who has control over these things? And then lastly, if you're going to travel into Lothlorien, will you allow a dwarf to pass? But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, Definitely want to talk about that later. Yeah. Back to Bombadil.
1: Okay, just to wrap up Bombadil, uh, You know, we've been discussing kind of what he resembles, some of his powers, some of the possibilities of this character. And it's worth mentioning that a lot of ink has been spilt trying to figure out exactly what Tom Bombadil is within uh, the Tolkien uh, histories and legends, trying to pinpoint that he's this god or he's this figure. There are even uh, theories that say maybe he is the creator god of of Arda. Uh, And some of these theories are more compelling than others, but uh, Tolkien himself uh, refused to entertain any of them. And I think this is a wonderful thing about Tolkien. He, uh, he wouldn't comment on Bombadil's nature because he, ref- he preferred for him to remain a mystery. He said in this fairy story, in this magical universe, there has to be mystery. And Tom Bombadil is one of those enigmas that is left. And that's intentional. So I think that is a wonderful thing about this character who enters our story uh, so briefly and exits as suddenly as he entered it and leaves us with this kind of magnificent impression and makes a huge impression on our lead characters. But he's not at all essential to the plot. Uh, You know, the story could absolutely happen without them, and the movies did, and the movies were fine without him. But he does give you a window into how old this world is. He gives you a window into uh, how many legends can pass your your path can walk right by you and have you stepping into a world of mythology and you don't even know it. That this is a world that is living with mythology and legend uh, and is so big and there are so many things in it, we can't possibly understand them all. I think it's wonderful.
0: I totally agree. I think it's wonderful. I loved this sequence, rereading it. I thought it was one of the standout moments of the entire book. Totally get why it's not in the movie. Shouldn't be in the movie. But man, I'm glad I live in a world with Bombadil. Me too. Can I jump to my point about Lothlorien? Is that cool? Yes. A few things I want to call out then about Lothlorien. This really stuck out to me in a few different ways. One very similar to Bombadil in that um, Lothlorien has a boundary. It begins and it starts as does Bombadil's domain. Um, But it is is, instead of just one ancient person, it's an entire race of ancient people of these ancient high elves who live there, led by Galadriel their queen. And a few things we've talked about in the podcast before, the idea by Joseph Campbell of an axis mundi, which is a place that can both access earthly and divine energies at the same time. Lothlorien really, to me, is the Axis Mundi, right? It's this place where time seems to slow down even slower. The The adventure group needs this rest and break. They stay there, but they stay there for an undefined time. Sam leaves it and is just like, wait a minute. The moon is not where it should be. We were only there for like two weeks, yeah, right?
1: We must have lost some time.
0: And they describe this place in purely mythic and magical terms, as if the magic is in the ground, yeah. Frodo says. And I they are- think
1: Sam says, it feels as if I were inside a song.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's what Lothlorien is. But before they get there, they have this interesting encounter with this elf, I would say like high-ranking elf warrior Haldir. And Haldir finds the company on their way into Lothlorien. This happens very similar in the movies, but it doesn't dive in as deep as it does. In the movies... It's kind of played for laughs that Gimli's like, don't worry, I'll defend you from this elf sorceress. And they're like, the dwarf breathed so loud we could have shot him in the dark. And now you are in this magical place and we'll submit to the lady Gladriel's will. And they go along. In the book, it's a little more fleshed out. Dwarves are not permitted to pass into the far, into the forest. They are barred at the border. If they're going to make an exception and allow Gimli In, to Lothlorien, he must be blindfolded, which is an insult to his dwarven honor, and he refuses the blindfold, and they're at an impasse. Haldir mentions, while in this exchange, that, you know, the rule is to keep dwarves out because dwarves are bad. You don't seem bad to me. I would definitely let you pass because, you know, you're with the company that we heard was coming from Rivendell. You knew Gandalf. You have the ring bearer. I would definitely let you pass. But the world is crazy and hostile and threatening. And when it is, I must follow the rules. I will conform to the laws. Even though I recognize that you're not a threat, you can only pass with a blindfold. And something really amazing happens in this moment. The entire company, the entire fellowship says, then we will all be blindfolded. And in this moment... Gimli then says, you know what? I won't let my hobbit friends, my human friends pass. As long as my elf friend, Legolas, will wear the blindfold with me, then I think I can take this insult to my honor and be able to pass. And they come up with this compromise where Gimli and Legolas walk into Lothlorien blind. The reason this really rang out to me is one, the idea of civilization needs borders that needs a place for one kingdom to start and another to stop. And that these borders, these thresholds, these actual transitions from Moria to Lothorian are very important. And when they pass, when you pass these borders, there's going to be a set of customs, norms, rules, regulations that you must conform to. And Haldior says, while the world is so full of evil, we must fall back to our laws and our customs to give us strength, and who am I to challenge them? And that, to me, really resonated. And though um, Tolkien warns us against looking at this as an allegory, I can't help but think of the current dynamic with the U.S.-Mexico border happening in 2020 and the political fights around it and the argument from the right saying, listen, we're hell dears. We're not monsters, but it's a crazy, terrible time, and the world's full of strife, and we're gonna fall back on the rules and regulations, and you can't pass. You're not allowed to cross this threshold because there's too much danger. And then you have this entire company of people saying, you know what? We're in this together, and we are going to persevere together, and we're gonna cross this threshold as one. And this is the point that makes the breaking up of the fellowship so sad at this moment. And I think for the first time in this whole book, they become one fellowship. They say it's all of us or none of us. Yeah. And I thought there was tremendous power in that moment and in that dialogue that was happening there. And what happens when finally Gladriel meets Gimli She says things like, it is said that dwarves are so ill-spoken and cannot speak well, but Gimli is a beautiful speaker. She learns that all of the reasons for her prejudices, all of the reason for their ancient antagonism from elves and dwarves, whatever that reason is, is BS. Gimli becomes a welcomed elf friend and Gimli gets to pass through these woods completely unmolested and gets all of the rights and privileges as any hero should. And I thought that was amazing.
1: And in return, he basically pledges fealty to Lady Galadriel. He becomes her loyal servant, and loves her in return for that show of respect. I think that's an amazing point that you've made here because while Haldir is this character who uh, retreats to comfort and safety in the face of danger and then the face of great evil, uh, and does something that is not necessarily ignoble, it probably feels noble to him to say, okay, this is the law, this is the status quo, I must uphold what my culture asks me to uphold what is happening with the fellowship, what is happening with this quest is those rules and regulations, those customs are breaking down in order to let through a more noble purpose, which is coalition building, if nothing else. It is about reaching across and finding someone different from you and identifying uh, your common goals, identifying the fact that they are suffering in maybe a different way than your suffering, but it is on both of you and it is on all of you to help alleviate all of your suffering. And that can only be done by looking to those status quos and trying to reform them. You know, Tolkien is uh, pretty much against allegory, like you said, um, but he qualifies that by saying, I think people mistake allegory Uh, and applicability. I think people confuse those two things. And the difference between those is that allegory requires the author to be sort of single-mindedly and controllingly uh, telling you this is what this stands in for. Like if he said that Uh, The Lord of the Rings is an allegory for World War II. That's the only way you could possibly read it. He says it's absolutely not an allegory for World War II, even though people really want to read it that way. But that's because they're confusing applicability for allegory. You can apply things that you learn from the Lord of the Rings to things that we learned from the history of World War II, but you can also apply things that you learn from the Lord of the Rings to things you see on the news right now. You can apply it to your interpersonal relationships, and that meaning is something that you create individually. That is, That meaning is something that suffuses your own history and your own understanding and perspective rather than the author prescribing it to you, and that, I think, is one of the greatest values that this literature has given us.
0: I love it. And it's not that these borders between Moria and Lothlorien don't exist. Right. They in fact do. Of course they do. And it's not that crossing them um, should be as reckless and simple because should Lothlorien just open its borders completely, orcs would be able to come into their forest and presumably you know, kill all of the elves. There's a legitimate reason why that there is a boundary between Moria and Lothlorien. And we learn that Haldir is out there on the border repelling orc raiders who are coming after our adventuring party so for good reason there is a place where Lothlorien starts and stops and for good reason that must be defended against actual enemies but when you are looking at the gimleys of the world who are noble who are self-sacrificing and who have the ability within the power of their party to potentially eliminate evil from Middle-earth. And you can't let them pass because of the rules and regulations where you have to discriminate against Gimli because of an ancient feud that no one even really knows why elves and dwarves hate each other. What you rob is the chance for Gimli's Gimlis and Gladriel's to get together and to form a union and a bond that's special. There's a lot to say about Gladriel. Um, I want to talk about her more, in particular her scene with Frodo and Frodo's choices, but I've realized that we have hit a very real time wall here. Yeah, We are over our average episode length, and we had about four or five more segments planned. So what I'm going to suggest is a pause and make this a two-parter.
1: I think that's totally valuable. I think we should do that because there is so much more that I want to get to at the heart of this book. Uh, Before we wrap up, I just want to uh, talk about something you said at the beginning of your point about Lothlorien and... uh, you know, tie it together with the conversation that we had about Tom Bombadil. Is that okay with you? Please do. So I am really glad that we jumped to Lothlorien and this didn't occur to me until kind of the moment that I heard you referring to it this way, but you called Lothlorien an Axis Mundi and you discussed, you know, it being the home of these high elves. And I think it pairs nicely with this conversation about Tom Bombadil because they do kind of feel like mirrors to each other. Um, They both are forested domains inhabited by uh, unearthly figures, you know, figures who are more than human or more than halfling, who are semi-divine. Immortal. Yeah, immortal and semi-divine or divine entirely, who have some mystery and myth about them, uh, who both feel like they correspond to those sort of ancient mythological demigod uh, traditions that we spoke about and where time is distorted where language is important in terms of how you communicate to uh, these figures and language can be used uh, by the powerful figure in order to entrance uh, the inhabitants or the fellowship or the hobbits. Uh, And they're also places of, uh, you know, Bombadils is the first threshold that they cross. It's the first place that they go. Uh, after they're in the Shire. It is uh, the first forest and the first real trials that they have to go through uh, other than just getting out of the Shire. And Lothlorien is kind of the last threshold that they pass together uh, as a fellowship before things break up and they have to go their separate ways. So I think it's fascinating to look at those two as mirrors, how it begins as four hobbits who have no idea what they're getting into, who have no idea where this road is going and think that every danger in this forest might be the end of their adventure, not knowing that it's just the beginning. And Lothlorien where uh, it feels like this book is coming to a close, but we still have an incredibly long road to travel. Uh, So I think it's interesting to compare those two things and see how much the characters have changed, see how much the book has changed from this silly fairy god creature to this very high um, and uh, venerable character in Galadriel. It's kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, so we have a lot more to get through, and I think we're going to have to punt that to our Fellowship of the Ring episode two. So this is the first phase... Thank you so much for going on this. I have a lot of final thoughts that I think will tie it together. However, you'll have to tune in to our next episode to get them. Until next time, guys, be kind.